You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number 20. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. Thank you so much for being here, as always. This episode is brought to you by the Study Abroad Journal, the practical field guide for savvy study abroad students. As you guys know, the holidays are here in full force, my friends. And if you have a person in your life who is getting ready to study abroad or go on a meaningful international experience of any kind, the best gift I can think of besides maybe money is a study abroad journal. Seriously. Guidebooks are available online. They already have an amazing camera in their smartphones. And luggage really isn't a cool gift, let's be honest. But a study abroad journal... This is something that is highly relevant, unique, and is actually going to help them get amazing ROI, return on investment from their experience. The journal helps students identify their goals, outline an action plan to meet those goals, and then figure out how to share the value of what they've learned when it's all over. To learn more and get your hands on a copy for you or for someone else in your life and use, use it as an amazing stocking stuffer, head on over to thestudyabroadjournal.com and use code INSIDESA at checkout to save 10%. And of course, if you are representing a study abroad office or a provider and you'd like to talk more about getting a ton of copies for your students this holiday season, reach out to us and we will get you started. So it's been kind of a crazy few weeks for me um, since you last heard from me in my interview with Lisette Miranda. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I am now sitting in Tokyo, Japan in a neighborhood called Katsushika. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> Japanese is really hard. But I uh, getting here was actually kind of a crazy experience. I've only been here about six days now. And before I arrived, um, it was all the crazy travel things happened. <laughs> um, last time I chatted with you, I, was, I think I was heading to Cambodia for a side trip with a friend, which was amazing. But uh, we ended up getting kind of, quote, stranded in Cambodia and then in Kuala Lumpur due to the volcano on the island of Bali. So Mount Agung, so for the past, gosh, four months now has been very irritable. And the last time it erupted in 1963, it was pretty catastrophic. It killed well over 1,500 people, I believe, destroyed villages, and it was just very devastating to to the island in a lot of ways. So the fact that it was rumbling again scared a lot of people, rightly so. I will say, though, that transportation and communication and all that type of stuff is much more advanced now in Bali than it was in 1963. So um, the sort of the fear factor, the level of uh, of its impact isn't nearly as bad as it was in 1960s. But that being said, there are a lot of fears around um, the evacuation zone, so evacuating people from the surrounding villages, which was really important, of course, and that's that impacted about 100,000 local Balinese. Um, but of course, Bali is also a major tourist destination. So um, gosh, we're talking you know, several tens of thousands of tourists there uh, at that time of year, which is their low season. And so... Um, it impacted a lot of people. And right before I left for Cambodia, there was sort of an, uh, it erupted a little bit. They put up a pretty big um, 
ash cloud into the sky. And I got out of Bali to go to Cambodia, not really thinking too much about it. It wasn't really impacting the island too much based on wind direction. But when we got to Cambodia, we learned that they shut down the airport um, and that uh, they were not allowing flights in or out of Bali for the immediate future because the wind direction changed and now the cloud of smoke was hovering over the airport and things like that. So as a result, my trip to Cambodia, which by the way, was amazing. Uh, Cambodia, Siam Reap specifically is a really cool town. And of course I went to Angkor Wat and many different temples and sites around uh, the area there. I was with my friend Jessica and uh, we just had a beautiful, beautiful time. It was so great to just hang out and actually feel like I was a little little bit on vacation. Um, I didn't take my computer with me, which I will never do again, by the way, because we got sort of stuck. We were only supposed to be there four days and then go back to Bali. And I was going to get back to work and produce a podcast and do all the normal things. And uh, mother nature had other plans. So instead we stayed in Cambodia a couple extra days and then we got to go to Kuala Lumpur. We stayed there for two days just because it got us sort of one airport closer to Bali. And then finally we got a flight to Bali. And so once I got there, um, it was sort of a crazy time of going to the airport and back and forth, trying to get a flight then to Tokyo because we were supposed to transition to Japan, uh, right after Cambodia. But again, all of that <laughs> was thwarted by the volcano. I just want to say, like, I am saying this all very lightheartedly. I know that my situation, I'm so lucky and it was not a big deal at all. Um, honestly, even spending a little extra money, which I ended up having to do for Airbnbs and things like that, is nothing compared to people who are much more directly impacted by the activity of the volcano, even before it erupts. The economy of Bali is kind of devastated at the moment because the the tourism rate has dropped dramatically. I think they're at like 30% what they would normally be at this time of year. People are just staying away because there's a lot in the media that is definitely overblown, um, no pun intended, but just exaggerated in a, in a really big way. Most of the tourist destinations that most people go to in Bali along the south and western coast and even in central central Bali, closer to Ubud, it's not impacted by the volcano. Um, the, all those areas are very, very safe. So if you're listening to this and you've been thinking, should I go to Bali or should I not go to Bali? I will introduce you to my friends there if you want it. I have all sorts of great advice I would love to share about Bali. So um, reach out to me and I will share it with you. But uh, go to Bali. It's great. And my in inconveniences are nothing compared to the 100,000 people who've been evacuated multiple times over the past few months who, and people who have lost their income and revenue because the tourism, the tourists are not coming. And so their cafe, you know, just can't open and they can't employ people and all those things. So it's a, it's a pretty big domino effect, um, as a result of the volcano. So I just want you to know it is safe and they're not going to let you go near the volcano, of course. And so you're, you have no real danger to you personally, if you go to Bali. So that's my little PSA about tourism to Bali and where you should go. But as a result, it did impact my life a little bit and which is totally 
fine. Not a big issue at all, but it's all kind of, it was just kind of funny in the moment of like, really, what else can go wrong? <laughs> and so we finally were able to get to Japan and even that was a big issue, but I won't get into it. Um, finally made it to our flat here and uh, my first uh, six days, about a week here in Tokyo has been amazing. I have my, my second guest uh, to visit me during this year. So that's exciting. And I'll sure I'll have more to share about Japan, of course. So if you want to see the behind the scenes or the day in the life or just photos of what I'm sort of seeing and doing um, on a day-to-day-ish basis, definitely follow me on Instagram. That's where I show and showcase most of what's going on in my life professionally and personally. So I'm the new Dorothy on Instagram and you're welcome to follow me there. So let's get into today's show. Today I am bringing you an interview with Dr. Mary Dwyer, who is president and CEO of IES Abroad. Now we had a wonderful, wonderful conversation several months ago, back when I was still in Kansas City. We're very fresh off the election. And we just had a lot of great conversations about how Mary transitioned her career from a very cutthroat, um, competitive academic environment at a division one medical school at the University of Illinois to then becoming a CEO, which is a much more sort of business perspective. Um, and the way she de- described it, a much more genteel environment of international education and and how she navigated that transition. She also talks a, quite a bit about how she just up-leveled her career over time from starting her work in, I believe she said, the late 70s at University of Illinois and just was ruthless, basically, in, in growing her career and pursuing opportunities that could help her get to the next level in the next stage of, of her career. And I, I just thought it was very inspiring to hear another woman that I feel like we have a lot of shared characteristics to hear someone sort of saying, I'm not going to sit down and shut up. I'm here. I'm ridiculously crazy intelligent. I have so much to offer this professional community and 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 making it happen for herself. So very inspired by, by this conversation with Mary. We also talk um, a little bit about um, the role of women in the workforce and the challenges and barriers facing all of us today uh, and what institutions can do to support women in more meaningful ways, as well as, you know, what we can do as individuals to advocate for ourselves, which I thought was a very interesting conversation. And of course, we talked a little bit about some of IES's uh, initiatives in terms of growing diversity in the participation in their programs, and also just looking at the long-term impact of study abroad and, and frankly, a lot of their data sets that can be used as a tool, as an asset to study abroad offices in advocating for more resources, more staff, more attention, what have you, across campus. So very cool conversation with Mary, and I'm so happy she was able to come on the show. I have to thank her team, Abby, uh, over at IES for making this happen and uh, reaching out to me and offering Mary as a show guest. So thank you so much for that. So without further ado, let's go to the show. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited that your team reached out to me to have you on the show. So I like to start all of these interviews with how you got to where you are today. Uh, I couldn't afford to study abroad in college. I went to a woman's college and they only encouraged language majors to study abroad. And I think they only had two options actually <laughs> for students to study abroad. So even though I had friends who studied abroad, uh, I didn't. And frankly, I couldn't have afforded to even if they had encouraged, you know, non-language majors to. 
Uh, so this explains my passion for supporting the highly successful IS diversity initi initiative to make study abroad accessible to all students versus just the privileged students who come from families that are in the top 1% of income earners in the U.S. So I, I received my international experience starting around the age of 26, actually, consulting and teaching abroad in medical education across seven developing countries. At the time, I was a faculty member, a very young faculty member at that, at the University of Illinois Medical School. And that experience, particularly in the developing world, really gave me the commitment, the passion for, and the bug about uh, how important international education is. And so even as I you know, moved into my campus administrative roles at the university, I continued to do at least just one international assignment per year. Um, as I progressed through, you know, my my career progress, and as a result, um, another colleague actually who had less international experience, who was um, contacted by the search firm that IES had employed to find its next CEO, uh, recommended me to the search firm. And so it's it's always precipitous sometimes uh, how one ends up where one does. And my career, even in academe, did not follow a straight line. It mm -hmm. did not follow a, a traditional path. So. Um, I ended up here um, in, a, in a roundabout way, but it's been 20 years at the helm here, and it's all been really exciting and fun and challenging, and it's it's a field that just continues to get incredibly more complex, particularly for third-party providers um, mm -hmm. every year, so right. it keeps my interest, too. Well, I'm curious. I want to back up a little bit because um, so many things from your story sort of sparked a lot of questions there. But I want to start with what was that transition like going from a university environment, which I have done, and it, so it has its own culture and expectations and how uh, the politics of that environment and moving to a third party provider, which is a nonprofit, but definitely I'm, I'm assuming a very different maybe ethos about how it operated. Was that a hard transition to, to go from the academic environment to a more business-oriented environment? That's a great question. I mean, it was complex in one way, and it was easy in other ways. Because I had been open to various administrative opportunities at the university and not you know, thought that my progression should be linear and traditional inside the academy, um, I actually had so much experience in across such a broad range of administrative areas by the time I came to IES that the only things I hadn't done that was an expectation of a CEO was I hadn't hedged currency and I hadn't made investments. And so, and you outsource those things anyway. Right. You know, CEOs, I'm not sitting here hedging currency on a daily basis. So that part really wasn't difficult for me. Although I could imagine, given how siloed universities are, particularly Research One universities, which was the environment I came from, um, that for most people who had who did not have as circuitous a path as I had in my career, it would be I would think it would be very difficult to make that shift. Um, in addition, I think that it's just psychologically challenging for some people. I mean, when I was a faculty member and administrator, when people would counsel me to look at other types of not-for-profits, I would always feel a little insulted because I would think, well, no, I'm, I'm an academe. Why don't I want to just spend my whole life here? Because I think, you know, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid of mm -hmm. academe in that regard. So I think that's a transition for some people. And, and I even remember when I was leaving the university. Many professionals came up to me and said, well, you're only taking a leave of absence, right, in case this doesn't work out and you can come back in a couple of years. 
And frankly, I could have done that and they would have willingly taken me back. And in fact, the University of Illinois came back within two months and started trying to recruit me back. But it never occurred to me to think of it that way. I just assumed that this was a new challenge. I would succeed at it. I wanted to and, and intended to succeed at it. And I wasn't going to look back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think depending upon your personality, it could be very psychologically um, more challenging. Uh, for me, the toughest thing actually was toning myself down because I came from a, uh, an urban research one university, which are pretty rough places to work. And <laughs> be quite hostile, particularly in my era. Hostile in terms of competitiveness, like cutthroat? Well, I used to say they ate their young for breakfast and they worked their way up to me by lunch. And I, and I was, I was considered extremely successful at the university relative to many. And that's why I got so many different, you know, opportunities to, to run different things at the university because nobody wants to promote somebody who's going to be unsuccessful. So, um, I got a lot of opportunities. It was, it was a great range. Um, but remember I was in an era when, um, you know, I probably started there in 1977. And so I was in an era where I was 26. I was one of uh, five women on the entire faculty of the medical school. And at the time, it was the largest medical school in this country. So for both because of the bureaucratic nature of big research, one universities, and, and all the rules and regulations and you know, the, the types of people they employ through civil service and tenured and professional, it, it's, it can be a hostile place, I think, to work at. But also in that particular era, just being a female at the level at the levels that I was promoted into um, was quite unique. And I'm very fortunate that they that they treated me that way because that was not the norm. And um, it made it very hard for others, I think, yeah. to progress who were just as worthy as I was. So you you mentioned before that you had to tone yourself down when you sort of entered into the IES world, the international ed world. Can you give me some an example of a situation that you encountered early on that you realized, oh, wow, I'm in a whole new world. I need to temper myself. Well, I, I wish I could remember concrete examples. <laughs> it was 20 years ago. But I, I do recall that... Um, I was just much more aggressive. I mean, I postured more aggressively because I had to. Coming from a research one university, I had to be much more aggressive to succeed than I had to be in study abroad. It was at the time, 20 years ago, I think uh, a much softer area, much more collegial, uh, very genteel. People communicated in very genteel ways. Everyone was very concerned about you know, never saying anything that could possibly hurt anyone's feelings mm-hmm. or misunderstood and so on and so forth. And that was not the world I had come from. So um, I, I had to just tone down the way I communicated. And, you know, eventually I learned how to do that. Um, and uh, so it all worked out just fine. But it was a culture shock for me. Uh, not not overwhelmingly so. It was just something that I noticed. That's really interesting because I feel like I, I've, I've battled with some of those things in my my career, sort of realizing in certain scenarios I need to, to, to tone myself down in different ways. And I think that's a good, great segue, honestly, into some of the topics I'd love to chat with you about, especially based on your research and, and your personal experience as a, a female leader of an organization. I don't, I don't even want to pin it as just international ed, but as a, as a, a great, very successful company. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about, especially based on our national climate uh, as of this recording, um, you know, we had our first major party female candidate for president. So what do you think are some of the bigger issues still holding women back professionally? I, I mean, I think there's probably been tremendous improvements that 
I'm not giving credit for since I started my career. But in general, I think things aren't getting significantly better for women leaders in terms of access to opportunity and pay equity. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think even during this most recent election, you know, we could probably both cite a, a number of examples of Hillary Clinton being held to a double standard that all the other candidates on the other side were not held to. Right. Um, so I, I think that I think the importance of of women's appearances, uh, you know, how women posture themselves, a lot of things, uh, women are still uh, treated to double standards. I, I still think, however, the two major things that keep women back are, well, three things, discrimination, obviously, which I think the younger generation of female um, mid-managers and, and entry-level uh, employees don't really recognize um, and think it's all evaporated and gone away. If it had all gone away, Brooke, there wouldn't be a 15 to 25 percent disparity in income, <laughs> depending upon what field you're in right. between between females and males. Um, so I think some I think the major factors that women still uh, face, whether they recognize them or not, is pay disparity, which frankly gets even wider for women at the top than for women at entry level. So I make significantly less than my male counterpart, you know, would elsewhere, as do all female CEOs, as much as 40% less. And I'm not complaining. I make enough money, but I should be paid equitably. And and I think that all women should be paid equitably. Uh, So I think that pay disparity is still a major issue. And of course, if you have pay disparity um, and you are making sub- you know, whatever amount of money, that's going to impact your ability to juggle all of the responsibilities you have, because you simply don't have enough income to put toward buying people who will help you juggle all of it. Mm -hmm. Then Mm -hmm. I think the other piece of it, the third piece is the uneven distribution of domestic responsibilities um, in families still remains a barrier for female professionals. And to paraphrase Eunice Kennedy, uh, women can have it all, just not all at once. Right. I I personally never believed that and tried to fight it, but I made the choice not to have children because I didn't believe that I could balance both and do as good a job at both. And that was my free choice. I have never looked back and regretted it. But I think most women don't want to have to make that choice and wouldn't be comfortable making that choice. So um, I think if there was more even distribution of child rearing and other domestic responsibilities within families, this lack of career progress of, uh, for women would be less of a problem, particularly if they also had available to them the amount of income that men have available to them to them in the same jobs. And uh, so I think these three factors, discrimination, income disparity, and the uneven distribution of child rearing and domestic responsibilities still keep women back. And mm-hmm. at IES, we pay for a third-party organization every few years to conduct compensation studies for every employee. And that's so that we don't end up practicing, you know, inequitable pay um, practices by gender, race or ethnicity. Um, and, and it's costly, but it's, it's well worth it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's the social aspect that organizations can't impact. I can't impact, you know, the domestic distributions, mm-hmm. uh, responsibilities of families <laughs> or employees, um, but I can impact pay and compensation and make sure that our our female employees are not paid less than male employees for doing the same work. And we we work very actively at that to prevent that from happening. Uh, Also, I think organizations can provide flex hours, telecommuting, maternity Mm -hmm. leaves, leaves of absence to assist employees with 
you know, balancing their personal and professional responsibilities. And, and we do that here. And honestly, there's a price to be paid by the organization for that level of flexibility. But I've never felt that the organization is burned by it. And I think national studies usually show that time out from the workforce for women across their entire career is usually on average about two years max. And I think that that number is probably reduced as families need, have needed double incomes uh, over the years. And so really organizations should view it as a long-term good investment to be more flexible for women when they are having these balancing challenges that are not all of their own making that are societally imposed. Uh, because in the long run, you're going to end up with much more loyal employees, more productive employees, uh, retaining employees that you know you want to retain, and and that's what's happened here. Um, also, I think promoting from within is uh, a strategy that helps women um, for discriminatory reasons about how leaders are perceived in our society. I think women are still disadvantaged when they go out to apply externally for leadership positions. And so um, a way to get around that, if you're a female leader, is exactly what I ended up doing at the University of Illinois. I ended up getting successively more and more responsible leadership positions within the same organization. Mm -hmm. And organizations can can help with that by promoting from within as opposed to assuming they should always promote externally. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that when... Uh, organizations are very flexible, that um, there's a price to be paid for other individuals too. And the question is, are other individuals willing to pay that price? And I'll give, I'll give you an immediate example. I just promoted an extremely competent 13-year employee at IES who has been moved up through the ranks here uh, to a vice presidency level. She's mid-30s. That's pretty young to get a vice presidency in this field. And she's vice president of strategy, new business initiatives, and analytics. And you know, I chose to promote from within as opposed to doing an external search, first and foremost, because I knew she could do it. She's incredibly talented. But she also has tremendous domestic and child-rearing responsibilities because her children are both, you know, under five. And her husband is a professional who has little control over his hours. And um, I and others probably compensate a little. As hardworking as she is, and she's extremely hardworking, um, I've had to make some adjustments to what I do that I wouldn't have done before in order to, you know, allow her the flexibility. I'm not complaining. I'm more than willing to do it. I'm just saying organizations have to look at being more flexible if, in fact, society is going to continue to have this uneven, you know, distribution of domestic and childbearing um, responsibilities. I, and I think it's a really, really interesting story that you just shared about your, your new VP. Congratulations to her. Uh, but I, I think, um, one of the things that stands out, I think about my career, you know, and I've had a lot of different roles within the field with providers and universities and I don't know, miscellaneous organizations like goabroad.com. And I feel like people are saying, well, how do I do that? How do I get all of that experience? And what I think, uh, honestly, what I'm people don't realize sometimes is that in that process, like I made major sacrifices on my own, or I had uh, scenarios in place that it allowed me to do that. You know, I, I was in a relationship with someone who was a, you know, a, a consultant and, and worked from wherever he 
wanted to. So he could move to South Dakota with me, you know, when I got a great job offer there or to Colorado later on. So for me, there were a lot of um, elements to that, that path, that circuitous path, like you mentioned, that allowed me to sort of take those opportunities. And I feel like sometimes, especially emerging professionals that I work with a lot, they, they sort of see the end of the story and they don't realize all of the um, negotiating that had to happen um, often internally to sort of decide, okay, do I want to do this thing? And what am I going to have to sacrifice to sort of up-level my career to the next stage? And I think I think for women more often than men, and maybe I'm biased because I am a woman, I feel like they're having to make more of those negotiations throughout their career. At least I know I have. Oh, absolutely. So I was speaking about what the organizations could do, yeah. but I could write a book about what the individual has to do, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether you have children or not, we all have responsibilities. I mean, for me, I had about 30 some years of responsibility for my elderly parents who had significant health problems. I mean, that I had to juggle that, too. So everybody, you know, everybody's got something. Right. and I think on the on the individual side, you're absolutely right. And and what I've observed is um, there have been significant changes in the field since I entered it. At this point, I mean, when I entered, I was the only female CEO among any um, third party provider. I, I think in the history of third party providers, actually. But I know I was the only one for a long time. I mean, for over a decade. And now um, I can think of at least three study study abroad organizations that have females at the helm uh, at the CEO level. And moving moving folks up, and and I think that con I think it's easier to move up in third party provider organizations mm-hmm. than it is in universities, where there's a lot of mixed messages and a lot of history about you know of barriers to entry, which to your point, you have to figure out a way to work around. And and I had to figure out ways to work around these, even while I was at the university, which is, you know, do you need a PhD? Do you need to be on the tenure track? Mm -hmm. Do you need to actually get tenure? Do you need to be in a particular discipline? All kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think on the academic side, you see the vast majority of study abroad directors as females, um, but you do not see them moving up to the senior international officers in right. the proportions that males are. And so that, you know, you see you see that it's a female field and that seems to be fine as long as somebody's a director of an office. But in fact, you know, at the higher levels, um, it's still a, it's a male field, which I, I find very ironic. Right. Um, and that's very typical, by the way, in the research of what happens in female-dominated fields. And at some point, evolutionarily, that changes. So if you look at nursing or library sciences as fields that were dominated by females forever, um, right. they, the top positions at nursing schools you know, 30 years ago and, and previously, and the same in libraries, um, would have been exclusively males. And, and many of those males, by the way, may not have ever done any nursing. Mm-hmm. And yet females chose them to be their leaders in the nursing schools. That is not the case anymore. And really, it was just the evolution of these careers, these fields, I should say, that resulted in a better balance of leadership by gender. Um, And I I have to believe that what's holding um, folks back and study abroad in this regard is study abroad offices do not are not empowered 
on campuses for the most part. If you look at the structure of academe, study right. abroad offices are down there with career services offices. Right. What value do they bring? <laughs> exactly. And, and powerlessness breeds powerlessness, frankly, in behavior of individuals, too. If you find yourself in a powerless structure over time, unless you're just a very, very persistent person, mm-hmm. uh, which probably you and I are examples of, but <laughs> But unless you're kind of excessively so, the tendency is to behave in behavioral ways in a powerless way, too. Um, So uh, I I remember actually um, back in my career as a researcher and I was conducting research on the career progress of female faculty at Research One universities. And, you know, I kind of privately concluded to myself that it would have been easier for me to become a brain surgeon than to succeed as a female leader in academe just because of all the barriers that existed. But that was, you know, two decades ago. And hopefully um, there's been a whole lot more career progress. The things I've noticed is that I think you know, when, when people say to me, well, you know, what should I do? I say, say yes to opportunity. Do not assume that um, every opportunity is going to lead you in a straight line. So I just had a conversation recently, actually, with a woman in the field whom I admire deeply. She's extremely talented. Uh, it does have a director-level position. And there was another position open uh, that would have been a CEO position. And her response to me was, I want to always work with students. The higher you go, the less likely right. you are. Oh, I know. <laughs> and you know what? Her choice is an entirely legitimate choice. And if she feels that way, that's exactly what she should do. But then she shouldn't expect to ever become a CEO because CEOs don't deal with students much right. at all. When they do, it's usually a problem case that nobody wants to deal with. So so it's not, um, it's not like a walk in the park or terribly satisfying at that point. So I think that... Um, you know, women do have to think about saying yes to opportunity, not assuming that it's going to happen in a straight line. Um, for me, I had so many different responsibilities at the University of Illinois system. And, you know, frankly, some of them I wasn't terribly interested in when they first offered me to go in and clean up a unit. I mean, an example was uh, their intellectual property office was losing money. I knew nothing about intellectual property law. I had no interest in intellectual property law. And frankly, I didn't really want to do it too much and add it to everything else I was doing. But I have to say to this day, of all the skill sets I developed at the University of Illinois, by being open to opportunity and going in you know, disparate directions, not a really clear, you know, linear kind of career path, I probably use what I learned in intellectual property law and how to negotiate licenses um, more than any other skill set. And I value it now, you know, and, and I would say the same thing about having taken economics, you know, I, I, I use economics every day. Mm-hmm. So I think we also have to do what you did so successfully and figure out how to negotiate the environments, realize we have to be able to pivot and be flexible and that life doesn't usually present itself in a straight line. And you've got to be willing to take risk and go in a direction that, you know, you might not be 100 percent interested in or that, you know, might not allow you to be in touch with students forever or uh, that you may not know as much about and therefore not feel as confident stepping into that space um, and be very open to learning. Because in my experience, you know, the women that I work with here and, and elsewhere in the field are very quick studies. 
I mean, any one of them could have learned what I learned along the way Mm -hmm. in terms of these various, you know, um, offices that I was put in charge of to run and with each of them, you know, getting more and more experience. So um, that would be one thing. The other thing that I've watched is the structural issue of the powerlessness. And um, I saw it in academia a lot that if you went to a, first of all, women frequently weren't invited to policymaking committee meetings. And I think you have to take the initiative and go to your boss and say, may I accompany you to that meeting? I think I can make solid contributions. And frankly, if you're really competent, most people would want you to help them look good and and succeed at their jobs. So you got to take the initiative and, and ask to to be in the game. Um, and then what I observed is women would tend to sit in the corners of the room if they were even there. And I would go to them and say, you need to sit at the table and you need to sit in the middle of the table. You should not be at either end of the table because that's where the conversation power exists is in the middle of the table. And they would usually look pretty intimidated and afraid of doing so. And you just have to do it. And honestly, I mean, I grew up as a very shy person. I think I, I would have characterized myself as shy all through college even. And so it wasn't easy for me to do these things um, either, uh, but I, I realized I had to do it or else I was never going to be a player. And I was never going to move up through the ranks if I just, you know, continued to kind of, kind of obediently do entry-level work and staffing work, which was never going to get me into um, the policy level and the line responsibility uh, level. Um, uh, I think, you know, going forward, for example, with research to your boss and saying, hey, I've got some research here. I want to advocate for the following policies for my office and for the benefit of students, as opposed to doing what I've heard so many study abroad office directors say to me, which is, you know, the CFO and the CEO just decided they were going to do this policy and nobody asked my opinion. Mm. And, I bet they, and I bet that's true. I bet nobody did ask their opinion. But that's a two-way street. You have to initiate those conversations or else people just don't think to ask your opinion. Um, And particularly if you're structurally in an area that's kind of perceived as powerless, you get get kind of painted with that brush, I think, as an individual. But that doesn't mean you have to behave that way as an individual. Um, So IES, for example, does this annual membership survey that we've been doing for, I don't know, two decades, I think. And I look at it from having been inside university and I say, wow, if I had had this, this is all the number. This is all the statistics I need to go forward and advocate for this change or that change or whatever, uh, because it's this wonderful study that shows nationally what you know colleges and universities do in a variety of ways that you know impact study abroad. Um, but when I talk to our member institutions, study abroad directors, and say, "Did you use that to get more support? Did you use that to, to advocate for a policy change? Did you use that to uh, argue that you are deserving of, an, of three more staff members in your office?" The answer is usually a blank stare, or no. Right. So I'm not saying that they need to use our study. I mean, there are plenty of studies out there. Um, the nice thing about ours is it's comparing like institutions. And I know as having been at a university, if somebody came into my office with some glorious study that included community colleges and I'm sitting at a research one university, that's not going to, that's not going to convince me. So, you know, I, I like this study for particular reasons for our members because they could actually use it to advocate, but you got to take that initiative. You can't expect your boss to make that a written assignment and come back to you and say, okay, you know, I, I've read your mind and I, I bet you want to change policies. And now I want you to go out and do your homework and come back and talk to me about it. That's just not the way 
organizations usually operate. So I think it's both an organizational responsibility, but as you're a great example of, it's also an individual responsibility. It's an equation. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't just get moved up by sitting in a corner silently, you know, doing their jobs patiently. You've got to step out, be take some initiative, um, do your homework, uh, be articulate about presenting it. One thing I did at the university when I was so young is when I, because I was the only female in the room at high level uh, meetings at the campus level, is I actually, maybe because of my shyness, Brooke, I don't know, but I would actually sit there and write down as the rest of them were talking, my five points that I was going to make about whatever was being discussed. And then I would in my brain say them to myself. And by the time they came out of my mouth, they sounded really articulate. So there's a way, you know, I understand the intimidation and it's exactly what you're suggesting that you two have met women that kind of feel like they're floundering and how do I, you know, what do I, what am I supposed to do here, you know, to get ahead. But I think there are these, these things that, you know, we can do and all of us who have gotten to where we have, have earned it and not, you know, nobody's handed us, you know, um, a silver platter uh, of, of opportunity. We've all worked for it. And so it's an equation. Both organizations have to change to assist everybody to succeed in the organization, not not merely women or men. But then as individuals, we also have to perform in a certain way and show initiative and be willingness to be flexible about you know what kind of jobs we'll take um, to in order to really succeed. Right. So well, for me, I, no. I, I just wanted to add to that. I think it's really interesting because I, I'm assuming that some people might say to you like, oh, how lucky were you to like be approached by that headhunter looking for, to fill this amazing role at IES a decade before any other woman uh, was on the scene at that level, that leadership level. But, you know, and people say to me, you know, oh, you're so lucky. I, I sort of look at them with like a snake eye because <laughs> or stink eye, because for me, I feel like luck is more about preparation meeting opportunity. And like you mentioned, even in that meeting scenario that you mentioned where you were, you know, um, writing out your answers or your uh, points you wanted to make in in that meeting, it was really just like, okay, the opportunity to speak was coming and you made sure that you were prepared in a, in a meaningful way in, in that environment so that you could look really smart and intelligent because you are, but you made sure that you were prepared for that moment when it arrived. And one of the things I teach my students in the Global Pro Institute, which is sort of like a professional development training program is, you know, I always tell people that you're building out your body of work. You know, not every job is going to fulfill every desire you have or give you every skill set you're going to need for the ultimate dream job you have down the line. But how can you look at each opportunity, whether even it's like volunteering on a committee, like you mentioned, or uh, taking a, a new role, what kind of skill set or what kind of experiences can you start um, stacking on top of each other to create this larger body of work, this larger package that is going to be really attractive down the line when you you the, the opportunity arises to become the CEO of something or the director of something or what have you. And I think it's really interesting. It sounds like you were collecting these experiences throughout your career, even before you started IES. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they're the standard skills a new CEO has to has to acquire. I do think, you know, a good part of life is luck. Um, and I, I remember my mentor saying to me uh, when I didn't have a PhD yet, and I was in my 20s. He said, I've worked with you for a year now. And by virtue of being a white male with a PhD, when we go into meetings, I'm immediately credible. By being a female without a PhD, you have to earn it. And it takes an hour, but you get there. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. should I have had 
Yeah, probably not. But, you know, that was reality, at least then. And I having seen study abroad offices and how they operate with upper administration, I think they're kind of in that situation. And so, you know, we would all be less than humble if we didn't admit that, you know, chance and luck plays. I mean, by chance, I wasn't born um, right. in po- poverty, you know, right. and if I'd been born in poverty, I that the odds of me sitting here would be pretty remote. So uh, because I wouldn't have gotten the proper nutrition or education, right. et cetera. So in life, that's a big, big part of life for all of us, no matter where we land. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there's people aren't stupid. There's no way I would have been given the five administrative jobs I had at the University of Illinois um, had I not proven myself at each point. Because no one wants to promote someone and watch them fail. That makes them look bad, and it doesn't get the task at hand done either. Mm-hmm. So um, so I think that for sure, um, some of life is chance, uh, but some of life is also earning it by working really hard. And when I look back on how hard I worked, there is no way I could have had children and worked as hard as I did um, through those five administrative positions. I mean, I was working nights and weekends consistently. And when I first came to IES 20 years ago, I was working nights and weekends and, and away from my husband for you know a month at a time doing international trips and so on. So um, the moral of the story is marry someone who's very supportive mm-hmm. also, but and my husband is, but I not, neither you nor I got to where we were without working extremely hard. And I have heard um, other colleagues say, I don't want to work that hard because these other things are equally important to me. And they're right. Those other things are equally important in life. And if they want to make those choices, they should. But I don't think men or women get to the, the C-suite without working pretty hard. Right. And um, and that isn't, that's not a, a negative about people who don't want to work that hard or don't want to make those personal sacrifices. Wish people didn't have to, but... In any industry, you have to work very hard and you you don't have standard hours if you are a CEO, um, no matter what industry you're in. Um, and I can see how that would interfere with family life and, you know, marriages if you're not married to somebody who's ultra supportive and having children. And, and so, you know, life is full of these choices. It's back to what Eunice Kennedy said. <laughs> you know, um, women can have it all, just not, not all at the same time. And I think all of us have to make those individual choices. And I don't disrespect or criticize those who choose the opposite of the choices I made. I admire them. Um, I think women who do a really effective job of uh, rearing wonderful children that are going to contribute to society ultimately will have contributed more to this world than I have. So I don't actually you know, judge the choices people make, um, and I hope others don't, but it takes hard work to perform any of these roles, including being a mother right. <laughs> for those who choose that role. And, and nobody gets to success in my experience, um, you know, unless they are from a huge family owned firm and someone hands them, you know, a, a position for, for most of us, you have to work hard to, to be successful, whatever it is you choose to, to succeed at. Um, and it, you know, it's just the way it is. And that's right. fine. It's going to be that way. And along the way, as you point out, you do accumulate um, a lot of very valuable skill sets that, you know, frankly, as somebody who majored in English and social sciences, um, I certainly didn't get from my higher education experience. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's the value, I think, of saying yes to various opportunities so that you can accumulate this, you know, really, really wide breadth of skill sets, which CEOs need no matter what kind of organization they work in. 
Right. I, I think that's really interesting. You mentioned how you you studied social sciences as an undergrad, and now you're the CEO of a, a very successful big organization. I was uh, giving a talk at a Lessons from Abroad conference this last weekend, actually. And after the talk, I was chatting with some of the students, you know, just recently returned study abroad alumni. And um, many of them asked me, like, OK, what was your major? Because they, they were trying to, like, plot out, like, OK, what are the boxes I need to tick so that I can sort of get to where you are, you know, they were looking at me as like entrepreneurial and having my own companies. And, you know, they were all sort of wide eyed when I said, oh, my undergrad is in international affairs and political science. I thought I was going to be in the CIA. And they just said like, what? Wait, what do you mean? I can't sort of track this exactly how you do it. And I sort of said to them, I said, it's, it's about the experience that you gain along the way. You know, it wasn't, I, I think I still loved my undergrad. I wouldn't change it for anything. But I also know, too, that the only way I could ever be successful in what I'm doing now is all the sort of collection of experiences I, I've i had, you know, since I started my career. Not as long as you, but, you know, for about 12 years now. So I feel like I'm getting up there now. But um, it's been a, it's been interesting to sort of see how that has evolved, because I don't know if about you, did you ever imagine that you would be the CEO of a company when you were, especially when you were in academia? Uh, as a child, I was born into a family whose father was very feminist. And he, at the, when I turned five, said there'll be a woman in the White House by the time you're 21. And he met as president and he was wrong, obviously. Right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so very high, without pressure, actually, interestingly enough, very high expectations of, uh, uh, support of, uh, you know, they never treated my brother any differently than my sister and me in terms of what we could become and, and very open to whatever we wanted to become. And I, I do think that, you know, a lot of what I learned about leading, being a leader and leading organizations, I actually learned from, from my father and then other work experience added to it. Um, but I think your point about what people major in is interesting because if you look at the, the older research about who became CEOs, for a while, a disproportionate number of CEOs actually were English majors, and those that were women tended to have attended women's colleges. Both of those things happen to be true of me, which is probably why I noticed it. <laughs> I think that, you know, in recent years, students feel tremendous pressure to major in technical areas, be it business, engineering, computer sciences. Right. And it was interesting because Wall Street Journal had a, um, a study, a national study it showed a couple months ago, about when people turn 30, 10 years after graduation, from college, who was making the most money and was most satisfied. Now, of course, when you take the engineering and the computer science people out of the scale financially, you know, um, which is most of us um, are left, uh, they probably made some more money at that age. But what it showed was actually philosophy majors were the most successful, then history majors and then English majors. And I thought about that and I thought, now what's common about those three you know, majors? And I thought, well, they are all majors that teach you to problem solve, right? You know, if you're if you're interpreting a piece of literature, or if you're analyzing a philosophical theory, or if you're looking at history, you know, these are all disciplines that teach people how to problem solve. And ultimately, everybody can learn how to do budgeting, everybody can learn how to do accounting, really, if they want to. Um, I mean, I'm not a numbers person. And I had a, a job in high school where I was doing bookkeeping, <laughs> I could learn how to do it. You know, there, there are there are skill sets that organizations expect to just teach people anyway. Mm -hmm. And, um, but problem solving is something that cuts across every job 
and does make the distinguishing characteristic for somebody to be able to move up, I think, particularly because fields are constantly changing. So, I mean, I feel sorry for the engineering major and the computer science major who learned one way to do things because, boy, they are going to have to have constant adaptability and be able to tolerate ambiguity going forward in order to remain vital and in order to remain current in their jobs. And you know, so be it. They'll have to do that. We all understand it. But the vast majority of us weren't technical majors and probably are never going to be. Um, but you're right. Students are getting the message that they have to be in one of those majors. And they're so afraid they're going to be unemployable if they're not. And, and they really don't know where they're going to end up if they're not. Um, I mean, I had clear ideas that I would become a lawyer. I was discriminated against uh, by a university, not allowed to sign up for pre-law courses because as the uh, dean of students told me at the time, um, I was just going to get married and have babies. So wow. I ended up, <laughs> I ended up pivoting and saying, okay. And I unfortunately wasn't, uh, farsighted enough to realize maybe there were other institutions that would have had a different answer, but, um, I just pivoted over to secondary education and, uh, love teaching. And that's how I ended up committing my entire career to education at one level or another, all the way up through graduate education and, and medical education. But the skill set that I had through all of it was problem solving and being able to learn quickly and analyze quickly and come to conclusions in a timely way and make decisions, um, that for the most part, you know, panned out well. And those are things you get from, from other disciplines, um, other than the technical disciplines usually. So, um, I think you're right. Uh, and your, your story is exactly, you know, you're saying the same thing to these folks. I do think that businesses do send the message at times too, that only the technical skills, um, matter, but the reality is they're all, every business is employing people across such a, a, a wide variety of jobs that, it's really not true that they only need business majors and engineering and computer science majors. And I think that, you know, one should pursue the area of study that you like the most because then you're more likely to succeed and, and you'll find a way to apply those skills and and perspectives to whatever job you end up in. Mm -hmm. And you're probably not the kind of person who's ever going to want to be in an engineering job anyway, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I I don't, I want to be mindful of your time. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk for just a few minutes more about the student experience, uh, specifically when it comes to study abroad. And one of the things I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on are, you know, we're talking about the role of women, especially in the, in the leadership sort of C-suite level and how, you know, there's definitely still that ceiling there for, for women in almost every industry. Yet in study abroad participation, women are killing it. You know, they're, they're you know, what, it's like a 70-30 split almost, I think, um, for female participation in, in study abroad programs versus their male c- counterparts. And I'm just curious, especially based on your own research or what you guys are finding at IES, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, we've actually spent some time researching this, and um, as a result of our diversity initiative being so successful, we've now decided just in the last year that we are going to put recruiting and uh, cultivating male students into our diversity initiative. Because if you look at it, males are actually the largest underrepresented group in all of study abroad relative to their participation rates in universities. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there are a number of things that are happening um, for males. And we've, you know, we've kind of pinpointed some of them. Um, and some of them are societal and some of them are, you know, not. Um, but 
the kinds of things that you know, that we uh, looked at were things like um, maturation differences between males and females at that particular point in time in their in their lives. Um, I think that results in male students being less likely to meet deadlines, frankly, mm-hmm. um, and less likely to walk into a study abroad office and even take the initiative to find out. Uh, we've found that um, in addition to maturation differences, frequently they get a mixed message about the value of study abroad. And with it having been a female field for so long, they perceive it as something soft that isn't as important, isn't going to help them as much, isn't going to count as much. Uh, I was with my own nephew, who's at a college, a very elite college, um, over Christmas helping him plan out his study abroad, which made me only appreciate our recruiters and advisors a whole lot more um, mm-hmm. than I had before I had to sit down with him. And and he's a very mature kid, but he literally said to me that his school, since he's a business major, that the dean had announced on numerous occasions to all the students that they should not be studying abroad because why would anyone want to go learn business anywhere but that oh. particular Oh my gosh. Yes. I've heard that before. I did some consulting work at MIT for the Dean of Engineering. And, um, you know, honestly, it was just like a crash course in him needing to understand what study abroad was and the different uh, program models that we have. And he was all about exchange programs. And, uh, but he didn't want to sort of use what we would define as like a traditional exchange model because he just thought, well, you know, we, we want to go other places for free, but they can't come here because we are MIT, right? And they also, he was also like, well, but we don't really want our students to go abroad for longer than a week because they, they can't learn circuits anywhere other than MIT because we are MIT, you know, all these things. It was just a really interesting conversation. It's so funny that you had a very, there's, it's, that conversation is still happening. Oh, yeah. And it's not peculiar to the school. He might right. nephew go or to him. I, I think also, there are still mixed messages in academia about what expectations for performance are for females versus males. Females are still supposed to graduate in greater numbers. They're supposed to get higher grade point averages and so on. And and it's okay for them to go off and do that thing called study abroad. Um, it's kind of the grand tour of Europe uh, privilege thing still. Right. Um, whereas you pointed out, faculty and administrators don't fully understand the value. And frankly, have never found study abroad credible, I think, um, as an academic venture, at least. And I think that they're protecting males from that a bit. Um, I think it's perceived as a soft area and of study and, you know, maybe shouldn't do that. Um, I, I think it's interesting because Kathy Sidelli of Indiana University conducted a study a few years ago showing that engineering majors who were females studied in exactly the same proportion as females majoring in any other subject. Whereas the male engineering students, of course, were not studying abroad. And so there's clear, it's not completely about discipline that you right. major in. Um, and so there, I think there are a number of factors that are, you know, impacting and, um, uh, you know, we just have to tease them out. And those that we can have some influence over, giving, giving male students more advising attention, helping them fill out their applications, getting them to hand them in on time, you know, a lot of the things that are related to their developmental stage, we can help with and colleges should help with. Um, also, we, we have to recognize there are differences by gender also. And, you know, if that means male students need to be accommodated in order to succeed at the same level and have this experience, then we need to put resources into doing that. And so and I think there are ways to get at it, but um, it is a very, very complex area. And I don't think any of the research in the field has 
entirely explained what all is going on. Right. Well, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with someone about this a few weeks ago, and um, this woman works in the field, and her response was interesting. She's her opinion was more along the lines of, well, men have always sort of had the advantage in in various elements of life, right? Professionally, academically, personally, professionally, family life, all these things. Like, why why can't women have this one thing? Why can't we just have the advantage? Like, why is it important that we enable more, you know, like in IES, your terms, like devoting time, staff, money, energy, whatever you're doing to sort of put those initiatives forward. Why should we be doing that for men, especially in the history of life? They have always had the advantage. Right. And we've, I've had actually, I've, I've heard that before too. I, you know, I don't think, um, well, I like to think of myself as an equal opportunity uh, provider, not a provider of opportunity just for certain groups. Right. So, um, for me, when I mentor, I mentor men and women equally. I don't say, gee, I'm just going to mentor women because they've been so put upon that they're the only ones, who, you know, they, they need the mentoring and males don't. Um, so I think that that, I think that has been implicit in the field and it's a female field, right? It's right. I always worked in male fields before this, so it was very interesting to move into a, a female dominated field. So I think that that is out there. Um, and uh, I also think study abroad offices are overextended. And so some of it isn't really a conscious determination or, or as articulate as that person stated it. I think some of it is that, frankly, some students are more labor intensive to advise for whatever reasons. Right. They either have learning disability or by gender or by race and ethnicity or by their GPA or whatever. And that's another thing. Male students have lower GPAs. So obviously that's locking them out of the experience, too. Mm-hmm. We could, we could change that. We've changed that at IES in order to permit not have that differentiation. So um, I, I think that what happens in these study abroad offices is because our own studies show that they're understaffed um, over time. And of course, during the recession, it got even worse and it hasn't bounced back. They're not being given a lot of you know extra resources to advise students. As a result, they're going to spend their time where they where they can be successful and where they can get the most return. Well, you can get your most return on the investment of your time by sitting down and talking to a white female with a GPA of 3.5. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a pretty easy conversation. Yeah. Whereas the student who walks in, and actually I just did research about this decades ago, or not about, about 15 years ago, actually faculty did it at Michigan State. And they looked at students who came back and they said that, um, first of all, they heard from everyone, their families, their instructors, everyone that they didn't really want to hear about their experience <laughs> while they were studying abroad. And so that tended to make it, you know, not be valued. But but they also told them that if they were African-American and they walked into a study abroad office at their institution with their white friend, that the advisor would immediately look up and start talking to the white student and assume that the African-American student was just on their way to lunch with the white student and, you know, we're hanging out. But they weren't going to really be interested in studying abroad. So there are assumptions being made that shouldn't be made. There are the, the, the work issue that, oh, my gosh, it's going to take me so much longer, you know, to advise the student that I just kind of veer over the easy one <laughs> just, you know, without probably even recognizing it. There, there are a lot of things that as institutions we can do to help with these matters, um, but it takes resources. And just over the weekend, we had our board meeting and someone said to me, why was IES so successful at the diversity initiative? 
And I said, I, I don't like to think of it as different from all other initiatives. We have a lot of initiatives we've been successful at. It's simple. Leadership has to say it matters and leadership has to assign resources. And then usually what follows will be success and commitment to something working. And that's the way we approached our diversity initiative, just like we approached every other initiative. And so it's all about those things. But if you don't put if you don't put resources behind it, if you don't have enough student advisors, if you don't say it's important, I mean, I, I see in the field a lot of laughter about males and a lot of frankly condescending comments about them. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. <laughs> but but that is kind of an easy way to never address the issue and never dedicate the resources to helping them participate at a, at a higher level. And so uh, I think that, you know, we just have to do it. I, I'm sure that, you know, as we tried as a society to become more equitable, and now it feels like we're going the opposite direction, frankly. But I think as a society in the 60s and 70s, in particular, as we tried to become more equitable toward toward minorities, toward, toward women, you know, probably what happened is we like the person who talked to you said they didn't see any reason to give men any help. They seem to have plenty of help hmm. and they did have plenty of help in advance. <laughs> but, but if they aren't participating to the extent that they're not participating and by the way, in the entire history of the field, this has not changed. <laughs> That's nature's way of telling us that something's going on here. And why would we think that, that any group should not have the same advantages and the same opportunity to study abroad if they wanted to. We would not have had that attitude had it been women or underrepresented students. We, we would have said, that's not fair. Let's right. do something about it. You know? Right. <laughs> and- well, and if you also look at this issue of like, we haven't solved the problem of gender equality at the top levels of every industry in the world. So if we know that men right now are likely to, right. to trickle up to the top, in leadership roles, shouldn't we be really uh, committed to making sure that they have some great, meaningful intercultural experiences so that they can take that experience with them in their roles that they have in the future? And then we could tackle the gender equality at that level, you know, in other ways as well. But I feel like it's sort of short-sighted, in my opinion, to sort of see it as like, oh, a study abroad kid for one semester, and that's the end of that conversation. It's sort of like, where is that student going to take that experience, regardless of gender or race or ethnicity? and impact their community or their organization for the the long game. Absolutely. And if there were ever time, any time in the history of my lifetime, at least, where we could use more males to be enlightened and progressive in this area, this is it. Right. I mean, we're moving backwards as a culture, as are many other cultures around the world um, in terms of uh, tolerance and, um, and, uh, being, uh, inclusive and believing that there shouldn't be such a huge wage disparity everywhere in the world. So not just here. So this is the time when, when we should want males to have this experience. This, this is good for society. You know, whatever we may think about the other issues, this is just good for society. Right. I, I totally agree. So I, 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 I'm going to ask you one final question. I want to end this on a really positive note. Um, you know, as someone who's been in the field for many years and you've grown IES to the level that it is today, you know, what are you most excited about for the future of international education in the coming years? What's giving you hope? You know, our 50-year study always gives me hope because it showed not the immediate response, which is it was wonderful. It changed my life, which is hard to, you know, digest in a 20-year-old because mm-hmm. it's still just 20 years old. And um, so that study I I keep in my brain in terms of 
wow, look at the long-term impact study abroad has. And it's almost like for 50 years as an organization, we didn't ever ask how we were doing. And then the report card arrived and you found out you got straight A's in 50, all 50 years in terms of the impact. So I, what keeps me going is the fact that I know long-term, if we get more and more students studying abroad, um, it has such a transformative impact on individuals and on what they perceive to move on and do. And I know that because I talk to a lot of our alumni um, who start their conversation with, I would not have the perspective I have today about society and the world, nor would I have the job I have had it not been for studying abroad with IES. Because I have to do fundraising. So I, I talked to a lot of <laughs> studied abroad many decades ago. So that gives me really real hope. And I think it really becomes more an issue of just getting more and more uh, students to study abroad. Because it still is a relatively small percentage of the total student population doing it. Um, I'm very heartened by the fact that I think in the last 10 years, more and more colleges and universities have emphasized internationalization. What they need to do, however, is go beyond that and make sure that they invest in curricular integration of the study abroad experience with the coursework that's on campus. And um, if they would do that, I think it would have you know even more impact. But I think it's, it's really a sea change to see how many colleges and universities now have in their strategic plan as one of their top 10 priorities internationalizing their campuses. Now, some of that's driven by economics, we know, um, mm -hmm. trying to get full-paying students from other countries to come here. But, but a lot of schools have been very committed to outgoing, to, to study abroad for, for Americans um, also. So we have some schools that, you know, they probably are fully saturated now, who are our members that are uh, mainly small private schools, liberal arts schools, who have, you know, 80% of their students study abroad at one, by the time they've, they've graduated. So I think, you know, again, at the leadership level, meaning the boards of these place, of these institutions and their, their, uh, their VPs and their chancellors or presidents, the fact that they've, most of them will have it as extremely important to their mission and to their strategic plans to further internationalize their organizations. And to me, that can only be good for students and give them a lot more opportunity. Even if they don't study abroad, they will at least be exposed to individuals from other you know, countries simply by schools being open to attracting more and more international students to the U.S. too. Um, I think despite the nationalism that's occurring in, US, in the U.S. and around the globe, um, that this generation and future generations of students will, will recognize the value of studying abroad, and they will participate in the global economy in a different way. And I see it in our older alumni. I really see the way they approach their respective businesses, and they're, they are disproportionately successful, by the way, <laughs> according to our research, relative to the average um, college graduate. So I think they've already parlayed the experience to be more successful, but I see their perspectives as very different than other business people that I meet with just in, you know, my line of work um, uh, by nature of, you know, meeting other CEOs. Their perspectives are more global. Their perspectives are more um, expansive, I guess I would say, and inclusive. Um, they're much more attentive to world events. They are not isolationist uh, at all. Um, they, they get it. They understand that, you know, we're not going to ultimately economies are not going to be able to truly go backwards in terms of globalization. That's just not an option anymore. 
and they get it. And so I, those things really hearten me to think that, you know, we'll, we'll turn the page here soon, but it is about numbers to a large extent. And I think a lot of schools feel a little, I don't know, limited in how many more students they can allow to study abroad as opposed to bringing in full paying students. So there, there are many policy issues in academe that act as barriers to entry and, uh, I don't say that critically of academia because I think this is also the most challenging period of time in this country in terms of financing higher education. So I'm very aware of the kinds of priority setting and challenges even the elite universities are having in order to thrive in the future because the business model isn't really working anymore the way it once did. Right. Well, I, I think that for me, if I were to sum that up, is that it may uh, it may not be easy, but it will be worth it. And so <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, Mary. It was wonderful to chat with you. And I look forward to talking to you soon. It was good to talk to you, Brooke. Thanks so much. And good luck in your work. I uh, admire you and admire the fact that you have negotiated the landscape so effectively and are contributing so much. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mary. It was a pleasure getting to chat with you and learning more about your story and how you found yourself in the international education arena. If you guys want to learn more about IES, head on over to iesabroad.org and you'll learn all about their programs, how they work with institutions, and a lot more. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate all your support. I know this is a little bit of a long one, so hopefully you guys have some long drives or flights ahead of you for the holiday season so you can dive into this one on one of those trips. If you guys want to connect with me, you can do so over over on Instagram as the new Dorothy. And that's where I share all the behind the scenes and day-to-day stuff in my life as I go on this journey as a digital nomad this year. And of course, you can connect with Inside Study Abroad on Facebook as Inside Study Abroad and connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect with you guys. And now what's happening for me over the next week, I am staying in Japan. I have a friend here for a few more days and it's really just all about work and exploring Tokyo. It might be heading to Kyoto. It's a maybe. This is not my first visit to Japan, luckily for me. So I have done a lot of the cool touristy destinations like a Kyoto and Hiroshima. Uh, so I'm not sure if I'm going to make it this time, but we will see. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. Thank you guys again. Until next time, I will see you on the inside. Bye for now. Bye.